Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season number two, episode three, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Brian St. Pierre, Director of Performance Nutrition at Precision Nutrition. In this episode, Brian and I dive into all things vitamin D, such as its many roles and functions in the body, how much sun you really need to get adequate vitamin D in the summer versus the winter. On the supplementation front, Brian dives into how much you should typically aim for and what doses and high doses might expose you to risk. We also talk about different lab values to generally shoot for, as well as interactions between other fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A. Fantastic practical tips here from Brian, who also shares some nice anecdotes from his work in pro sports and mentoring trainers around the world. If you're new to the podcast, check out our first couple of episodes of Season 2 on Weight Loss with Danny Lennon and the Art of Sports Science with Dr. Fergus Connolly. Also, if you'd like to get caught up on all the great content from Season 1, then check out our Best of 2017 show, which is Episode number 52 of Season 1. Awesome. You can check out my layups from this episode at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, along with the more in-depth performance tips as well. And finally, before we get started, a quick word from our new sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water, collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean. Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sports drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Season 2, Episode 3 on Vitamin D. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Brian St. Pierre, Director of Performance Nutrition at Precision Nutrition, working with a host of professional sports teams, including the San Antonio Spurs, Cleveland Browns, and many more. Brian also works closely with Dr. John Berardi as Nutrition Educator at Precision Nutrition, writing articles, presenting at seminars, and educating other fitness professionals as part of PN's certification courses. He's a regular contributor to Precision Nutrition blog and has featured in Men's Health, Men's Fitness, Q Magazine, Stack, Testosterone Magazine, and many, many more. Brian, really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. There's some of those uh, publications that I forgot I even contributed to, so <laughs> that, was, that was well done, my friend. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, listen, before we kick things off, can you give folks a little bit more background? How did you get into the nutrition field and working with Precision Nutrition? Yeah, I mean, funny enough... Um, I actually started my college career as an engineering major. I was an engineering major for three years before I finally switched to nutrition, even though I spent way more time learning about uh, training and nutrition than doing my engineering work. Nice. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it goes sometimes. You know, and so then I actually started my career uh, as a strength and conditioning coach at Cressy Sports Performance with Eric Cressy. I was like the first, one of the first interns, uh, the first employee there. So that was a great like launching pad uh, for my career. I learned a ton from Eric. Awesome. Back went back to school for my master's in nutrition and to become a registered dietitian. And during that process, uh, PN, I've been a part of their, you know, a subscriber to their newsletter list since like day one before PN was even founded, you know, looking at JohnBrady.com. Yeah. Uh, they sent out an email looking for, they were looking to hire uh, coaches. Like it was this, at this point it was called Lean Eating. Now we call it PN Coaching. So they're looking to hire some some coaches. And I had always planned on starting my own facility and doing a lot of nutrition coaching and, and training. Um, but I figured, what the hell, you know, I'll, I'll apply. Uh, worst that'll happen is I don't get it and I just do what I was going to do anyway. The best that happens is I get an opportunity to work for, you know, Dr. Berardi, JB, who was one of the reasons I got into the field in the first place. Um, and I was fortunate enough out of like 300 people that applied, they hired myself and another guy and I've been at PN ever since about five and a half years at this point. That's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how those little moments in life, whether it's uh, following your passion with uh, getting into nutrition and training or things like that, that really start to dovetail uh, careers and everything else. That's this really cool story. And of course, today we're going to jump into talking all about uh, vitamin D. You know, it's cold out, it's dark out, it's winter time. So we'll talk about the sunshine vitamin here. And apparently almost 80% of the population is insufficient in vitamin D. So can you uh, give listeners a little bit of insight into why vitamin D is so important for health? I mean, vitamin D is, it's part, I'd say part of the reason why it's so important is it's not even really a vitamin. It functions almost more like, more like a hormone in the human body. And it's, it contributes to so many facets of health. It contributes to performance. It contributes to immune function. It contributes to energy levels. I mean, without, without enough vitamin D, it contributes to bone health. I mean, without enough vitamin D, lots of things can go wrong. Um, so it, it, it plays a big role and it's especially important for those of us who live like in the Toronto area, like yourself or in the Northeast of the U S like me, where this time of year up until, you know, depends on where you live exactly, but April, maybe even May, um, you can't even produce vitamin D from the sun. And so it's, it's super important to be cognizant of what your levels are. Um, and it's hard to get in food. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why it's, it's helpful to be aware of what your levels are and recognize that it plays a role in so many bodily functions, you know, from really small things like, or small in terms of like, like drilling down, like your parathyroid hormone, of course, just bigger perspective things like cancer and immunity, uh, you know, bone health, um, all kinds of things of that nature. So it plays a role in a lot of different areas of the body. Yeah, it's so well said because, you know, again, as you mentioned, vitamins are things that we just can't synthesize in the body where vitamin D, you know, we can synthesize and it acts more like a uh, um, a hormone, secosteroid, um, and affecting all these different tissues of the body. And you mentioned there about you know not being able to produce it. Now, if someone's standing outside New York or Toronto or London, the UK, between sort of November, February, March, you know, if are they going to get any vitamin D if they're standing out there in the sun for? 15, 20 minutes? <laughs> nope, not really. You could be there stark naked, and it's just the angle of the rays of the sun uh, make it very difficult to produce any significant amounts of vitamin D. Whereas if you're you know, living around the equator, you're, the angle of the sun doesn't really make any difference uh, year-round for the most part, nothing significant. So if you live in those more northern, northerly latitudes, um, you can't really produce vitamin D from 
it depends on exactly where you live, but yeah, November, December, January, February, at least oftentimes October, March and April even, um, can be challenging times depending on where you are. So it's, it's super important, particularly in those areas. But what you even find what's interesting about that is you look at people who live in like Florida in the U S or in just in southerly regions, their vitamin D levels aren't necessarily substantially higher than people who live in more northern latitudes. I mean, they might be higher in like the wintertime if you're comparing apples to oranges, but year-round, or apples to apples, uh, but year-round that you see a lot of people who still have insufficient levels, even if they live in areas where they should be able to produce adequate vitamin D from sun exposure. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where the the, the scare of, of melanomas and skin cancers and things, and of course, a lot of the research coming out of Australia you know, a few decades ago with sort of a transplanted British population in the hottest place, <laughs> one of the sure. hottest places on the planet, wasn't the most ideal. Um, and of course, now you had lots of, even in the UK, I think even a few years ago, there was, you know, rickets was almost starting to make a little bit of a comeback because people were so much sunscreen outside, so much fear of people getting sun. So yeah, in the, in the summertime, how does things like sunscreen even impact our ability to absorb vitamin D? Well, I mean, I'll preface this with Sunscreen is important and people should not neglect to wear sunscreen because yeah, developing melanoma um, is not something that you want if you can if you can avoid it. For sure, so it, for sure. You know, don't, I think too often sometimes you get people who are, are big vitamin D proponents who are like uh, – in my, in my opinion, just too far down the spectrum in terms of like anti-sunscreen. It's, I think there's reasonable usage, right? So I think the best way I can put it is – Let's say I walk my dog most days of the week, um, especially in the summertime when it's nice, a little more challenging this time of year in Maine where I live. Um, but I'll you know, take her for like a 20, 25-minute walk. I don't wear sunscreen on that walk. I'm not getting a significantly long enough sun exposure where I'm increasing risk of like uh, being burned and I'm not exposing a ton of my skin. I try not to walk her during like the really peak sun times, like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So I walk her usually in the morning when it's not super hot, but I get some nice sunshine. And also I feel like just from a general health perspective, there's some other interesting data, not even related to vitamin D, uh, but sun exposure can help in, you know, improve your circadian rhythm, uh, can decrease blood pressure, like some really cool stuff you know, in terms of getting some sun exposure. But now if you're going to be – and you'll produce – depends on the individual, but you can produce 5, 10, 15, up to even I think 20,000 IUs so long as you're exposing enough skin um, in that 15, 20, 25 minutes of sun exposure. And that's plenty. That's you know plenty of vitamin D, more than you need um, to help get adequate blood levels. You know, But I think people where people can get into trouble is like never wearing sunscreen or thinking, oh, if I can have 20 minutes of sun exposure is good for vitamin D production, then 40, 40 minutes is better or an hour is better. And that's actually not true. Up to a certain point, after about that 20 to 30 minutes, your body will actually stop producing further vitamin D. Um, so you're not actually getting any extra benefit and now you're significantly increasing risk of of getting, you know, getting burned, which increases risk of skin cancer and whatnot. And so, but it's, but sunscreen, especially the ones that block UVB rays, uh, block vitamin D production. So when you wear sunscreen every time you go outdoors, you know, if you're one of those uh, people who's always following, you know, some like these dermatologists recommend it, oh, to decrease aging and things of that nature. Constantly wearing SPF, constantly wearing sunscreen particularly ones that block UVBs, uh, UVB rays, you are not going to be producing vitamin D. So you're increasing your risk of being vitamin D insufficient or even vitamin D deficient for sure. Absolutely. Well, a couple great points there. One of them is people going on holiday, they don't need to spend the 
four or five hours in the sun do they to get their vitamin D? That's a right. good, no. very good point. And of course, yeah, with the sunscreen for sure, definitely areas where there's a lot of you know thin skin as well around the nose and the uh, forehead and these areas, like especially the hottest parts of the day. So that's definitely good to clarify for folks. Um, now, what about people with a darker skin complexion? Are they going to need to be out there longer to be able to get sufficient amounts of vitamin D? Yeah, it's really interesting. People who are, are darker skin, it does it is harder for them to produce vitamin D from the sun, and that's probably in theory like an evolutionary um, thing, right? I mean, it's kind of the for sure. thought process there. But yes, people who have darker skin, it it does take more sun exposure to produce as much vitamin D as someone who's who's lighter skinned. And there's lots of competing theories as to why that is, or if people who have darker skin need blood levels as high. Um, you know, there's all kinds of discussion going on there. I don't, I don't know if anybody quite truly knows, but we do. What we do know is that it takes more time, uh, increased sun exposure. So, but people who have darker skin, it may not always seem this way, but you're still at risk of getting a sunburn. So it's one of those things where you still have to balance. Like, okay, it takes a little more time to get my vitamin D exposure, get my vitamin D production, but there's still a point of diminishing returns where you can still get a, a sunburn or still increase your risk of a developing skin cancer. So instead of maybe 20 to 30 minutes, it's probably 30 to 45 minutes or somewhere in that in that range to get that vitamin D production. But I would still be mindful of not having the mindset of, well, if some is good and then more is always better. For That's sure. what gets people into trouble. The all the all day session you got to be yes. <laughs> be right. mindful of. Um, right. Obviously, the sun is the best place to get vitamin D. What about vitamin D in foods? What's the difference between plant foods and animal foods when it comes to vitamin D? Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is like there aren't a lot of food sources of vitamin D, right? There's uh, you know fish, particularly like uh, fish organs. That's where like uh, cod liver oil is famous for its vitamin D. Uh, eggs contain some. Uh, mushroom contains some. That's pretty much about it yeah. I mean, some other some other shellfish maybe and a little bit of seafood but it's not a whole lot and so what you do often get from maybe like uh, mushrooms is usually like vitamin d2 though there are some interesting things now where they're like expose them to um oh, i can't think of the term off the top of my head some type of light i'm, I'm losing I'm drawing a blank but they expose them to a certain amount of light and it'll actually produce some d3 as well in the mushrooms which is really interesting awesome but for the most part, um, you're going to get some vitamin D3 from food sources, but it's relatively minimal. Of course, they also add vitamin D to dairy, uh, to a lot of dairy options. And that was done to help prevent rickets and things that were common in the developing world in the, and even in, in industrialized countries in like the early 1900s, uh, mid-1900s in that time period. So you, that's where you can get it. It's in some fortified foods as well, but it's not naturally occurring in a lot of foods yeah it becomes a bit of a misnomer doesn't it that idea of vitamin d rich foods it's sort of a, you know <laughs> yeah, of, of anything it has a little bit but there's still, still a, a pretty sparse as you as you mentioned there and of course you know getting back to what our grandparents would have done with this you know with using cod liver oil i always um fascinated by things that are sort of traditional and then a couple generations later, we have all the science to show us that, hey, this cod liver oil has got the vitamin A and vitamin D and some of these factors that are going to really help us out. So uh, do you see more more folks using that now again in their, as part of their uh, nutrition program? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I would still say people, between the two, people definitely do fish oil much more so than, than cod liver oil. Um, but I just definitely see more people doing cod liver oil. It's just one of those things I think you have to be a little bit more mindful of because you can't treat it like fish oil. It's not like a one-for-one -one replacement. If you try to take take it and get as many omega-3s as you get from fish oil, you run risk of 
of potentially, you know, having uh, excessive levels of vitamin A and sometimes even vitamin D. So, but I think in, in small amounts, a teaspoon, one to two teaspoons a day, um, there can be a ton of value because you're getting more than just the omega-3s you're getting from, from fish oil, right? You're actually getting a, a vitamin D-rich uh, food for the most part or, or supplement, whatever you want to classify it as, along with vitamin A, which is important. Um, I think what's oftentimes lost in some of the massive vitamin D supplementation is that a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins work kind of in concert. So if you're taking a ton of vitamin D of your own accord, if you're doing it under medical supervision to treat a deficiency, that's one thing. But if you're taking high levels of vitamin D, you know, 5,000 IUs a day, 10,000 IUs a day, like you see some folks taking, and you're not ensuring that you're getting adequate amounts of vitamin A or even vitamin K2, which is a particular type of vitamin K, there is some evidence that suggests you could be, yes, getting benefit from, from the vitamin D, but also causing some, having some unintended consequences um, by high dosing the D and not getting in enough A and K. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones. That's a great point where, you know, the lower your vitamin A status, you're definitely at risk for more toxic effects from the vitamin D. So you've got to watch that. Uh, right. And that's definitely something that a few years ago, you know, if we stay on the kind of the supplement um, route here is that, you know, people seem to be supplementing with high doses of vitamin D, 10,000 mm -hmm. IU a day or more for months and months on end. And um, of course, you know, you touched on some of the pitfalls there. Any other things that people should be concerned about with, with toxicity or, or side effects if they were to take big doses for long periods of time? Yeah, I mean, one of those, uh, that's just, this is just kind of my general philosophy when it comes to supplements in general is it's, it, you should also always have the principle of do no harm, right? And so, <laughs> sure. yes, and I think, well, something sometimes that's easily forgotten in Absolutely. the quest for, for optimization, yeah. right? And, and sometimes the research just doesn't show us the full picture yet, especially when something is relatively new on the scene, like vitamin D was a handful of years ago or so. Um, people just kind of took the, went a little too far in terms of on the pendulum, right? People weren't having any vitamin D, taking any vitamin D for long periods of time other than what might have been in their multivitamin. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, we became more aware of the importance of vitamin D. People started supplementing like crazy, right? Taking 5,000, 10,000 IUs when they didn't every day, when they didn't even know what their baseline blood levels were to begin with. And we just didn't have that much data on the whole, right? We we had a flashlight on a small piece of the puzzle, and we didn't see the full puzzle yet. Um, so I think that's one of the things I'm always cautious when it comes to stuff like that because we don't know what we don't know. And there's only so many questions that have been asked and explored. And so I tend to just have a, a more cautious approach in general. Um, and you, because you always we always discover things in hindsight, and it's like, oh, well, I wish we had realized that. When your vitamin A status is low, right, you increase risk of toxicity from vitamin D. Even if we're taking the same amount, you and I, if our vitamin A statuses are very different, that can affect how those that, that supplement supplemental vitamin D affects us. And so I think it's important to always keep that in mind and, and to kind of always have the do no harm principle. Because when you look at some of the other research on vitamin D, and this is a lot of it is um, observational, it's not necessarily known cause and effect, but there's some pretty consistent observational evidence that once blood levels get above maybe like 40 to 50 nanograms per ml, um, there is consistent increases, small increases, but increases in risk of mortality, which I find really interesting. And it's, I mean, we're again, we're talking associations. This doesn't prove anything. Um, but you look at the vast majority of the vitamin D evidence, and it shows that most benefit comes from 
helping people not be sufficient, insufficient or deficient. Once you're kind of above that threshold, you're, you're maximizing most of the benefits and minimizing risk. Once, and there are times and places to have much higher levels in certain circumstances. But I think oftentimes people kind of misapply that. Well, if someone who has cancer should have you know, really high levels of vitamin D to help with their treatment, then I'm going to have really high levels all the time because I think it might help me prevent cancer. We don't know that's the case, right? Just because it's important or helpful during a certain circumstance doesn't mean it's going to be helpful all the time. And it might have some unintended consequences that we're not aware of. So I tend to be, where can I maximize benefit, minimize possible unintended consequences, you know, so I do no harm with myself and with clients uh, who ask about it. And then if they have a medical need or there's some other interesting particular circumstances that they have where they might want to have it higher, you know, I might give them information to discuss with their medical team. But I'm, I'm a big advocate of – it's a long-winded, say of, long-winded uh, way of saying do no harm. Be more cautious and then only increase uh, as necessary. Absolutely. I mean, that idea of context is one that you mentioned there. And yeah, it gets so lost all the time if people mm-hmm. pick a certain scenario and, and see a, a certain dose or an exercise or whatever it may be, and then apply it to a different situation, just uh, like for like when it's just not the case. And uh, you mentioned things like insufficiency. And of course, you know, the Endocrine Society Committee classifies that. We'll just do some Canadian and uh, American numbers here, sort of, you know, less than 30 nanograms per mil in the US and of course, less than 75 nanomoles per liter. So if people are getting tested, um, you know, that's kind of those areas to shoot for. And as you mentioned, yeah, getting up beyond that 40 is definitely one where uh, we start to see some potentially bad things going on. And ironically, the normal range even goes up on the labs here in uh, in Canada. We go up to 250 nanomoles per liter, which is far above that. So, wow. so even, yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's the, they're slow, they're slow to change. So it's not always, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, the good well, to, and part good of it, I think out. it's the evidence isn't necessarily clear, right? We don't quite know because like those were, that was based on observational data. Um, It's not like we've been giving people really high doses and then seeing if they die. Um, (laughs) That's not not usually how research is is done just for ethical purposes. Um, You know, uh, unless it's like a preventive measure, like a statin, where you're trying to see if you can prevent deaths. Um, You know, so it's one of those things where there's probably not enough evidence that says, man, going higher than 40 definitely increases your risk. But there's definitely some enough data that would just make me take pause and consider the cost to benefit ratio for myself and for my clients. All right. And so that cost to benefit ratio changes depending, like you said, on context. So if I'm just looking to get healthier, I'm already generally healthy. I'm just looking to be fit and make sure I'm, I'm not insufficient. Then there's no need for me to crank it up to 250 nanomoles per liter, right? That's probably not going to give me any more benefit for that goal than just being in the and you're I'm trying to think of your numbers so about 75 to probably like 100 nanomoles per liter yeah um, in that 30 to 40 nanograms per ml range you know I think that's probably in that 30 to 50 nanomol, uh, nanograms per per milliliter or what does that translate to about 75 to uh, 150 or so yeah 25 in that in that ballpark um that's what i would generally consider to be like a pretty safe place to be in um oftentimes you see it's a little higher in the summer because you might still be taking some vitamin d and getting some sunshine and it might come down a little bit in the winter when you're really just taking it supplementally uh, and whenever you get through your diet but as long as you're i think in that range you're probably in the do no harm maximizing the benefit uh space for the most part Um, but again there can be medical 
times and places where it should be higher, but that's not going to come from suggestions from me because I would consider that outside my scope of practice. Um, now I might give a client information to discuss with their doctor about it if I think it might be valuable because I've, of things I've read and research I've looked at, but it wouldn't be my call, right? And I would make sure they discuss that with their medical team. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice there. And, you know, we talked about various ranges and if we shift gears here and talk athletes, you know, a few years back with a lot of the meta-analyses and reviews coming out with potentially showing things like VO2 max and recovery and force and power production, all these uh, incredible potential benefits around vitamin D. Of course, now in 2017, we're seeing a little bit less um, overall sort of uh, euphoria around this. Can you give us a bit of an update on, on what some of the benefits could be for athletes and then where things stand? Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because it, it, to me, when I look at the data, it it actually it looks pretty similar from my perspective, like what we saw earlier, and what we see now. But I think how people, the lens they they looked at the results differed. And it's kind of like fish oil um, in some ways, where you know for a long time people were like, "Wow, fish oil is amazing for heart health." Um, well, that was mostly true in people who had really insufficient amounts of omega-3s, and we didn't have the more advanced anti-inflammatory statins we had today because fish oil has some anti-inflammatory components. So when people took fish oil, it caused some pretty cool benefits. Uh, now you see in some of the more recent data with fish oil, if they combine it with an anti-inflammatory statin, they see no extra benefits. Therefore, they determine that fish oil is not beneficial. Like, well, no, that's not really true. Uh, maybe it's not beneficial in conjunction with that medication because that medication is giving most of the of the benefit. Uh, but from other For health sure. perspectives, there's there's plenty of other benefit. And it's the same thing to me with vitamin D. When you looked at some of the older research, it was in people who were often very had very low levels of vitamin D, right? So you give them a bunch of vitamin D, you bring their levels up into those healthy ranges outside of that insufficient or deficient range and bam you see all these markers of performance improve um, but when you give vitamin d those same levels same amounts to someone who's already above that threshold you don't see significant performance enhancement um, because there's a point of diminishing returns right it would be like protein or creatine or anything else of that nature if someone's already taking five grams of creatine a day We've already maximized their creatine stores. If I give them an extra five or 10 grams every day, it's not going to give them any extra performance benefit. Right? We've already maxed out the benefit of, of creatine. And I think vitamin D kind of fell into the same category, um, but we didn't have a lot of the baseline data that we have today. And so I think you, you look at the research, and in my opinion, what it generally shows is if someone is deficient or insufficient in vitamin D, giving them supplemental vitamin D can improve their health, their immune function, their performance, without question. But if someone's already in that, that healthy range, if they're already above uh, 75 nanomoles per liter or 30 nanograms per ml, um, taking more vitamin D probably won't give them a lot more extra benefit. So that's kind of where I feel things stand. And part of that's probably also colored. I mean, we all try to be as objective as possible. We all have some internal, you know, biases, and that's probably colored by my philosophy of do no harm. But when I look at the research, that's how I interpret uh, the difference that you see today versus, you know, maybe 10 years ago or, or further back on the performance enhancements of vitamin D supplementation. Yeah, no, that's really well said in terms of uh, those those parallels, especially with omega threes and fish oils, and that idea of taking uh, deficient and insufficient. Uh, clients or athletes and, and seeing some of these gains and you know one of the things that we that we definitely see at Canada basketball is some athletes will 
you know, we'll get the levels checked. We'll be prescribing them vitamin D, um, and then the, and the levels, you know, just will really refuse to budge even at different mm-hmm. doses. And so, it sometimes, and even in folks who are coming in for you know general health, maybe they got a lot of abdominal adiposity, their blood sugars are higher. There's a lot of inflammation. We see this sort of um, you know, consistent sort of low level. Can you talk a bit about some of the kind of root causes of what could be driving uh, vitamin D down versus just uh, a need for more of, of, of that uh, of sun or, or, or vitamin D from food? Sure. I mean, we do know, um, you know, the more body fat you have, the more it kind of like, what's not the right word, kind of almost steals vitamin D, right? Because vitamin D can kind of be stored in body fat uh, and then it's kind of almost removed from from your blood, right? So your blood levels are actually lower. So having obesity can kind of, uh, maybe not artificially, but it it will increase your risk of being vitamin D deficient. So I think that's important to recognize. And then there are some other um, metabolic differences in terms of like diabetes or things of that nature that can also impact vitamin D status. The exact mechanisms are kind of outside my my area of expertise, um, but it's just something as a nutrition coach or as a practitioner of any sort to be mindful of that. It's usually you have that uh, rule of thumb where one every 100 IUs of vitamin D is going to boost your blood levels by about one nanogram per ml or two and a half nanomoles per liter. But that's that is just a general rule of thumb, right? That does not apply equally across different populations. And that kind of goes back to the context we talked about, right? You look at some of the research and it's, well, in this particular population, X, Y, and Z happens. But you can't then extrapolate that out to everybody because um, different populations are going to respond differently. So we know people who have obesity are going to respond different, differently. Their blood levels of vitamin D are going to be lower. They're not going to respond as, as well to supplementation. They often need to take more than that rule of thumb would would have you to believe um, for various reasons. And so I think that's always important to keep in mind. Yeah, I love that idea of even generalities or rules of thumbs, especially with things like vitamin D. Is that something with for you and your clients or, or athletes a very seasonal thing in terms of bringing it in and taking it out or how do you how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think like probably the best way I can describe it is what I or describe what I personally do. So in like the winter months, I mean, the, the multivitamin that I take has about 1,600 IUs. Um, so I take that year round. So it, that gives me a pretty good baseline in the summer months. I, I know I'm getting plenty, plus I'm walking my dog and, you know, I would go to the beach and uh, go to the lake. So I get plenty of sun exposure and, and wear reasonable amounts of sunscreen and I've got my blood, my blood levels tested. Uh, in the winter months, you know, I take an extra – what does it come out to? Like 4,000 or 6,000 IUs per week. So I take like a 2,000 IU pill, like usually like twice, um, two more times a week, just to help make sure, because I'm not getting that same sun exposure, uh, just to help make sure I stay above that 30 nanograms per ml or 75 nanomoles per liter. Uh, and it's kind of the same idea with a lot of with clients that do get it tested. Now, not all of my nutrition coaching clients, which are, are many, get their vitamin D levels tested all the time and are discussing it with me. Um, but the ones who do and are curious and want feedback and, and insight to discuss with their medical team if need be or just for general health preventive purposes, um, yeah, I gen- generally, again, a rule of thumb, but of course it always depends on the actual client, recommend if they are going to supplement, they do supplement in the wintertime, um, and they don't necessarily need to supplement in the summertime if they're getting adequate sun exposure, which would be 20 to 30 minutes, you know, I would say you know, four to five days a week in that in that ballpark. But And also having that confirmed with testing. You know, if they go in and get their yearly physical, 
making sure they get their vitamin D tested. Most primary care physicians, at least uh, where I'm from and the people I work with, I would say test it these days. For sure. Uh, but if, if your doctor doesn't, it's not an expensive test to have them add on. A lot of insurance companies in the U.S. are now covering the cost of the test. Um, so it's definitely something to chat with your doctor about if you've never had it tested. So you have a baseline to work from because your number this time of year will be different than if you took the number in, say, March when you've had a whole winter uh, without sun exposure where your levels will drop. So it might actually be in your best interest to kind of get it measured at the end of winter when your level levels will be lowest uh, to see where you stand after a whole winter, if, whether you were supplementing or not, uh, to see even if you were supplementing, man, I'm still low, right? Um, so I think that can be really helpful and maybe even get it a couple times a year in the beginning until you get a good feel for what works for you, what you respond to, and then test it yearly from there. Um, and then always kind of adjust as needed based on actual results. Yeah, that's a great point there as well. So, you know, that two to three week half-life, um, serum half-life of vitamin D to wait till that end of the, you know, the deep dark days of winter to get it tested to see where people falls is great advice. And I know Dr. Graham Close in the UK has mentioned things that, you know, around uh, daily supplementation versus weekly. If it's, you know, if you end up with the same weekly dose, you end up kind of at the same spot at the end of the day. So, so that's always a, an option for folks, um, almost a bit like you're doing there of, you know, a couple thousand IU three times a week. But if we continue to talk immunity here, Brian, any more insights, wintertime, cold, dark clients, catching colds and flus, things going around if people have kids at daycares, et cetera. <laughs> what else do you recommend on the nutrition front or, or movement lifestyle, things that you tend to use with your clients? Sure. Well, I mean, making sure that your vitamin D status is adequate. We do know vitamin D status can be really helpful um, for helping decreasing your risk of upper respiratory tract infections like colds, decreasing your risk potentially of, of even things like the flu. And then, I mean, other things in terms of other lifestyle practices would be, and this is what I always kind of hammer on, like getting those fundamentals in place. Uh, too often I see clients and even even coaches of clients really focusing on minutia, um, you know, deep, diving down deep into details and overlooking some big fundamental pieces that would make a much bigger difference in decreasing their risk. So simple things like washing your hands frequently. I know you've probably heard it a million times, but it makes the biggest difference, particularly if you've got young kids like you and I do, where you're constantly wiping noses. Like washing <laughs> yeah. your hands after that is a lifesaver. Um, otherwise, it's almost guaranteed you're going to catch their cold, right? Making sure you're getting an adequate protein. Protein is critical for immune function. Um, making sure you're getting in plenty of fruits and vegetables for all the various immune benefits they can give you. Uh, making sure you're getting enough omega-3s, whether you're consuming fatty fish or taking some fish oil or a combination of the two, has immune-boosting properties. Uh, sleep, right? Getting enough quantity and quality of sleep, you know, aiming for hopefully at least seven hours of, of quality sleep each night. And that makes a big big difference. I, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but something along the lines of if you get less than six hours of sleep, like a couple nights in a row, it suppresses your immune system by like 40%, uh, something along those lines. Yeah, it's incredible, it's isn't it? Crazy amount. And when you have young kids, that often isn't always within your control. But doing whatever is within your control to maximize your sleep can make a huge difference. And then stress, right? What can you do to help build stress resilience or lower what you'd call your allostatic load, like total amount of stress that you're under. Um, whether it's just through simple breathing exercises, like doing one of the things I do, taking my dog for a walk outside most days to help de-stress. Uh, five, 10 minutes of meditation doesn't have to be, you know, sitting in a quiet room with your fingers crossed and your leg in the, in the you know, 
crisscross applesauce as they call it today and they don't call it uh indian style like they used to when i was a kid <laughs> uh, for, probably probably better that that way but i mean it doesn't have to be in that uh, i don't know i think people sometimes have a misguided idea of what meditation can be and i, I know i probably used to as well um but i found big benefit for myself and for a lot of clients just taking five or ten minutes doesn't have to be a ton um to decrease stress which will also have a huge impact on your immunity so there's there's many big pieces, and I think focusing on those fundamentals, making sure you're getting you know adequate um, overall good nutrition principles in place, so getting plenty of protein, plenty of fruits and vegetables, some healthy fats, making sure your vitamin D status is adequate, um, getting enough carbs to meet your activity needs, and then getting in – I mean <laughs> these are all obviously easier said than done uh, – adequate amounts and quality of sleep working on your stress as much as you can and washing your hands uh, those are your your biggest rocks by far i mean there's all kinds of other little things you can do drinking tea and all kinds of stuff like that that's going to have a much lesser impact than those fundamental pieces oh i love it that's great i mean that idea of big rocks is such a big component for me as well and that uh, just getting some of those fundamentals down and you know, as you mentioned there, things like even hand washing obviously is massive and it's something that people don't tend to do anymore. They just go from the laptop to having lunch right next to the computer and, you know, right. touching all sorts of surfaces and whatnot. And uh, so that's definitely great advice. And, um, and I think it's often overlooked, like you said. I mean, when, massive. when I was uh, doing my dietetic internship in the hospital, like they were going through really trying to hammer down like really specific hand washing protocols um even for the doctors actually the doctors were like the worst offenders um they would kind of <laughs> yeah. they'd roll into the client the patient's room and you know like nurses had to be like really on top of it because they would get really uh nailed if they didn't and as an intern if i didn't follow protocol man i was gonna get i was going to get chewed out um but they, they were doing that because you look at the research and it found like when you follow these specific hand washing protocols, it, de it decreased risk of transmission of infection by like some astronomical amount. Um, it made and that it made a bigger difference than practically any other protocol that they would implement. And because it, it is that beneficial and it's it is super easy to overlook, like you said. Um, but it is it is fundamentally this is probably the single most important thing you can do other than like coughing into your elbow um, to decrease risk of transmission of those kind of things. Yeah, it's incredible. The Vancouver Olympics in 2012, that was the biggest thing they were pushing, uh, or 2010 rather. Um, a lot of the Alpines was all about hand washing, making them yeah. wash their hands four, five, six, nothing, seven times a day. It makes a bigger difference, man. It's yeah. amazing, right? And it's so easy to overlook and to focus on like sexy, compelling ideas. So if I take this supplement or I do, you know, have this special sleep thing to help, like, no, man, that's going to make like a 2% difference where washing your hands will make like a decrease your risk by like 70%. Like, eh, let me, let me weigh the cost benefit ratio here. For sure. I'll wash my hands. That shiny new toy effect is uh, so, so strong, right? Um, now how about you, Brian, with, with your work and working with clients and working with athletes, are there certain types of athletes that your clients that you work more with, or can you give folks a little bit of an insight into your day to day? Yeah. I mean, I work with um, a wide variety of folks. I mean, these days, a lot of my work um, is with other fitness professionals. And so I probably do the majority of my work coaching other fitness professionals on, you know, working on their coaching skills and work on their nutritional skills and things of that nature. Um, and then a subset of my time is, is working with some of the elite teams and athletes that we work with. Like we do work with the Spurs. Uh, I've worked with the Cleveland Browns historically. We've done some work with the Calgary Flames and the Maple Leafs and other teams like that. I mean, and I worked with, um, 
Sloane Stevens, who won the U.S. Open this past year. And so we've got plenty of athletes and teams we're working with. But there's probably no – there's no one specific um, area we work with more than others. I mean, historically, I worked with baseball players more than anything else. But that was simply because – I started my career at Cressy Sports Performance, and they sure. trained mostly baseball players. Right, so that was just that was a product of the circumstances I was in, um, you know. But we we work with, and I work with a whole vast array of, of clients. I've worked, you know, consulted with like Indomit and Sue in the NFL, and I've worked with NFL teams. I've worked with NBA teams. We've worked with some NHL teams. I mean, in reality, uh, the fundamental nutrition principles we're trying to teach to these athletes are things that apply across any sport. Yes, there are some specific minutia that's more relevant to some sports than others. But most of those athletes need to hammer home like key fundamentals before we even dive deep into some of the minutia. So it's I think it would be amazing for most people to see how a lot of particularly young professional athletes eat um, as opposed to some of the older, more advanced guys who, have, who, if they've been around for 10, 15 years, uh, have learned that eating well is going to make a big difference in how they recover day-to-day and perform day-to-day. When you're 22, it matters less. Um, when you're 32, it, it matters more at the highest level because they play every, you know, almost every single day, and it beats you down, and you need every, every benefit you can get. Um, but on the whole, yeah, we work with a wide array of athletes, from Olympic athletes to MMA to tennis to team sports. That's great to hear your emphasis there on just, uh, I think a lot of times, um, even, you know, trainers or general public think that athletes have sort of a different set of rules that they play by. But to talk, you know, to hear you say that those, those fundamentals, definitely things that at Canada basketball that we try to cement down or, and as you mentioned, the younger they are, it's, uh, it is amazing what's, what's going in and, and the performance that's going out. But, um, if we could, I want to be respectful of your time here, Brian. So, um, you mentioned you work a lot with, uh, trainers. Um, if you had to give a piece of advice to trainers on a nutrition front, whether it's vitamin D or just nutrition in general, um, that sort of 20% that'll help to get them 80% of the way home and some of those big rocks, um, uh, what might it be? Mm, that's a great question. It'd probably be, it'd be two particular things. One, it would be a pl- recognizing that people are at different points in their journey so you can't apply what's worked for you if you're 22 or 23 or 24 um, to your clients maybe in very different circumstances and this is something I learned the hard way as a young coach and I see thousands of fitness professionals struggle with themselves because oftentimes as fitness professionals we're really into this stuff right we listen to podcasts and we go to seminars and we read blogs about eating better and maximizing our performance and our body composition and whatnot most of our clients aren't doing those things, right? It's just a means to an end to them. They're lawyers and doctors and accountants and actuaries and dentists and you know whatever. Um, eating well and exercising is something they might they might enjoy, but it's something that they do to help them live better, perform better in other areas of their life usually. Whereas a lot of times. For a lot of us, we eat better and exercise to get better at exercising, right? I know when I was younger, like I was trying to get big and get strong. And so, I mean, so much of my life revolved around getting bigger and getting stronger. I exercised for the sake of exercising, um, not to help me do other life activities, but to help me actually get better at, at lifting. So, and I think a lot of fitness pros fall into the same category. And so we apply things that are working for us at that point in our our life, in our career, these more advanced protocols to 
less advanced individuals, right, who don't need and won't see as much benefit from those protocols. So I think it's always important to keep in mind people who are coming to you with more general goals or who are much, much earlier on the path than you are to start at fundamentals, right? Fundamentals first, always. Um, so that's probably my kind of slides right into my second piece, which is focusing on the fundamentals, helping people focus on like how to eat slowly and mindfully with minimal distraction, learning to tune into their actual like hunger and appetite cues so they can actually de determine when they're satisfied and paying attention to what we would call like an internal locus of control, which is like, hmm, am I actually satisfied from this? As opposed to using external factors like how much food is left on my plate relative to how much I put or how, <laughs> how much is the person next to me eating, which is actually how – there's some really fascinating research sure. from Dr. Brian Wansing's lab. Uh, he's a great book called Mindless Eating that shares a lot of the research and it's really easy read and I highly recommend it um, into all of the things that impact why people do what they do and why they eat as much as they do because we don't pay attention to internal, internal senses that tell us we've eaten enough. Uh, and it takes practice and it takes intentional practice. We have, you have to first have to eat slowly to learn to actually tune into it. So learning on how you eat and focusing on how much you eat, eating only until satisfied, and then focusing on what you're eating, making sure you're getting adequate protein, adequate fruits and vegetables, and getting some healthy fats mixed in, and a reasonable amount of carbs. Um, you know, those are kind of like your bedrock principles, which can be applied to almost any eating style. You want to eat whole foods, plant-based? Cool. You can still you can do that using eating slowly, eating mindfully, still making sure you're getting plenty of protein, you know, fruits and vegetables, healthy fats and carbs. And you can do that whether you're eating paleo or whole food, plant-based, or even keto. Right. So it's we teach fundamental principles that can be applied across virtually any dietary style. So I think that's that's kind of my take-home message. Uh, apply the right things to the right people. When you have more advanced people, do more advanced protocols. When you have less advanced people, ma make sure they ma have mastered those fundamentals first and know what those fundamentals are. Uh, and I think it's eating eating slowly and mindfully, so focusing on how people eat, how much they eat, and what they eat. The timing, the when, that comes much further down the line. Awesome, Brian. That's a fantastic, fantastic advice. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're really busy uh, this time of year. So you know, where can people keep up with all the work that you're doing? Where can people keep up with all the PN uh, stuff and uh, stay in touch with you on social media? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the two are probably intertwined. I am yeah. not a, a big social media user. I mean, I have Twitter, but I don't really tweet. Um, I have a personal Facebook page that I've had since college when it was the Facebook, and yeah. it was just for college kids. Yes. Um, I don't really use it. So you're not going to find me on social media a lot. If you want to keep up with the work that I do, uh, just keep up with the work that PN does because I'm highly involved in a lot of it. So go to precisionnutrition.com. Uh, you can check out our certification, which is where I do a lot of my work with our students and grads. We have like a private Facebook group with about uh, about 18,000 um, students and graduates in there, and I kind of help steer the ship and give guidance, and we do case studies and uh, talk about coaching skills and ideas, and it's it's a lot of fun. I do a lot of work in there. Um, and then you can always check out our blog and infographics. I'm usually contributing to something, um, something there. And then I'm I'm usually speaking about about once a month uh, across the U.S., Canada, and 
and overseas uh, internationally. So you can always check out uh, precisionnutrition.com. I think it's backslash upcoming seminars or just Google precision nutrition upcoming seminars and you can see where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be speaking on. That's not updated yet right now. It still has 2017 dates. Um, but by the end of this month, it'll be it'll be updated for 2018. So people can kind of check out all aspects, um, free blogs, presentations, and the services that we offer. Uh, I'm kind of involved in all of them. So precisionnutrition.com be the best place to start. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include all those links in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Brian, for, for tuning in here and for coming on today and everyone else for tuning in. Uh, if you guys have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you about today's episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you guys enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share with friends and colleagues. Awesome. We'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.